Hi, I'm Matt Barbett. Welcome to the Freudcast. Would you like to know the future? Now, who wouldn't? And though, while it's impossible, one man seems to have developed quite a canny knack for predicting it, at least when it comes to British general elections. Professor Sir John Curtis has been a fixture of the coverage around polling times, but how does he do what he does? He joins me now. Good to see you, John. Thank you very much for joining us on the Freudcast. You're welcome. Has it become easier to predict outcomes? Well, I'm going to quibble with your starting point, I'm afraid, Matt. Strictly speaking, I mean, what we do on the exit poll, which is what people have kind of get to know me for, is not really a prediction. Because what do we do? We ask people how they have voted, and we use that information to tell you what the result's going to be. So somebody might just say, look, if you can't, as a result of having asked people how they have voted, not then tell me what the result's going to be, there must be something funny. Now, of course, in practice, it's much more difficult than that. But strictly speaking, it's an extrapolation and not a prediction. And beyond that, I mean, I have no more perfect insight than anybody else. I mean, the only thing I would probably say to you is that you know, through studying, polling, et cetera, et cetera, I can probably give you some idea of, look, well, actually, if this remains the case, then this is likely to be the consequences. But, you know, I mean, just to acknowledge that none of us gets it right. I mean, I, in early on in the 2019 campaign, said that, you know, I think there's, you know, pretty likely that we'll get a record number of third-party MPs because at that point, not only did it look so like the SNP was going to get, you know, the vast bulk of seats in Scotland, but the Democrats were going to increase the number quite considerably. Well, in the end, they didn't, and although there was still a lot, still, there are still a lot of third-party MPs. I think, from rightly, there were 84, and the record would have been 80, would anything over 88. So I wasn't that far out. But the truth is, did I anticipate at the beginning of the election campaign that the Democrat vote was going to fall away? No, not least because it's not very often that the Liberal Democrat campaign vote goes down during election campaign. So I, you know, I claim no special, predictive, mystic make powers. <laughs> the exit poll, which sounds one just to people because sometimes occasionally it comes up with results that nobody else was expecting, is based on a methodology. It's not based on predictive insight. And um, uh, otherwise, you know, what I suggest might happen is not as good as bad as anybody else. Though I certainly would have said to you, look, you know, just look at the opinion polls. And it's perfectly obvious that leave voting Britain is going to go in one direction and remain voting is going to go in another. And that's not really a prediction. It's just taking the data and making sense of it. You make it sound so simple, but of course it hasn't been previously because we've seen opinion polls and exit polls get it woefully wrong in the yeah, past. Sure. So that's a question of method. And basically the story here is that um, uh, we, we, had the, we had working on the BBC's prediction programme, because the BBC's long been kind of taking the early results and using them in order to work out what the outcome is going to be. Um, a statistician at Warwick for a University called David Firth. And it's David who first said this, and then I kind of jumped onto it and helped him to negotiate past the powers that be, who said, look, um, the problem the problem that he and I and all the rest of us all knew about, the difference you have in the United Kingdom about doing an exit poll, is that we do not count the results by polling station. Rather, we take all the ballot boxes and we bring them to a central town hall or a school or a leisure centre or whatever, and we count them all together. So nobody knows how those living in a particular village or suburb or whatever, how they voted. 
So what, um, uh, and, and that therefore means that you can't, as you can in most countries, look at the results last time and say, well, if I take a sample and I stratify them by what the result was last time, I can come up with a sample that I know were typical of everywhere else. Because you know, all, all exit polls, if you're talking about getting people to tell you how you voted, as they come out of the polling station, well, you have to do it in a sample of polling locations. Big, difficult, expensive operation. So you have to choose a relatively small number of polling stations. But in the UK, we can't know by the representatives. So the crucial insight um, that David Firth suggested we should follow, and it's, a, it's an obvious one when you think about it, is that, sure, levels of support for the party vary dramatically from Wick to St Ives. But the changes in support for the parties vary a lot less. They do vary, but they vary less. So therefore, there is a greater probability that any sample of polling stations, however chosen, will give you a good idea of how much party support has gone up or gone down since the last election, as opposed to telling you how, what share of the vote the parties have got this time. And so essentially the secret of the exit poll is that we try wherever possible to interview in exactly the same place as we did last time because the data from last time gives us an estimate of how our polling stations voted last time. We've then gone, been there again. And that gives you an estimate of the change in vote share for each of the parties in each constituency, from which then, with a bit of statistics, bit of a bit of modelling, um, and, and a bit of um, working, uh, turning um, estimated outcomes into um, uh, pro probabilities of each party winning each seat, gets you to the position where you can forecast and turn the seats. Because once you can, once you've got the change and you've got a way of estimating the change everywhere, then all you've got to do is apply that to the real result last time. And hey, presto, you've 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 got a forecast quote unquote. Um, uh, so that, that that's the that's the essential uh, secret. It is basically going back to the same place twice. And our experience is, and it's there in 2019, is that although it's only one polling station in every constituency, usually it's only one polling station in the constituency. The change in vote share in those polling stations ends up being pretty close to that uh, of the constituency. Oh, and by the way, there are a few other advantages doing this, such as, you know what, it might be true that, let's say for the purposes of argument, maybe conservative voters are less keen on being able to respond to the expo. So we, what we do is we the interviewers stand outside and they say, look, look, I know you've just voted. Do you mind just filling in this ballot paper? It's just like the one you filled in, put it in my by the body. Oh, by the way, it's for the BBC and ITV, right? And maybe, you know, some people with certain political views are less willing to do it. Does it matter so long as that is constant across the two elections, right? Because the bias is constant. And equally, again, people keep on asking us, well, what do you do about postal votes? Answer, nothing. Because the assumption we are making is that the change in vote share amongst those who vote by post will mimic that amongst those who vote in the polling station. Now, now these are all assumptions and they're not necessarily valid. Um, but again, this approach uh, so it, uh, means that, you know, as long as errors cancel out, we're fine. Out of curiosity, where is the most typical 
place the most typical polling station in the UK, if there is one? I don't know. I have no idea. We're not looking. For, we're, we're not. We're not interested in typical polling stations. Uh, only no, broadly speaking. So uh, I have no idea. Okay. Big question though. Why do we give so much, place so much importance on an exit poll when we could just wait till the next morning and find out the actual results? Absolutely. Well, um, there are various ways of... Is it to give the broadcasters something to talk about for a couple well, of hours? Well, it is. I mean, I, mean, I, mean I, I, I can give you various versions. I mean, uh, one version, of course, is that in theory, it means that rather than uh, most of the country spending a sleepless night finding out what the resort is, they can all safely go to bed knowing what the resort is, and thereby the country's labour market productivity is not decimated <laughs> the following day. Um, and uh, indeed, I noted um, that um, the, in the script line for the Archers this year, on the day after the December 2019 election, um, one of the characters, a couple of characters saying, uh, you know, did you stay? Oh, no, I watched the exit poll, and it was obvious it was all over and went to bed. You know, which I kind of take as a bit of, you know, some people think the exit poll might be right these days. Now, of course, the trouble is, of course, is in recent years, we've come up with exit poll results that have been so surprising to people that they've then stayed up, not because they want to know what the result is, but they want to know whether the exit poll is right or wrong. But, you know, that's life. Now, but more seriously, um, you're right. That one of the things that the broadcast, well, there are, two, there are two, I think, principal purposes. One is that, you know, apart from a few results from Sunderland and Newcastle, which are not necessarily typical, the broadcasters don't have much for the first three hours. And so the exit poll does at least give them uh, something to talk about. It gives them, an, uh, uh, and it helps them to frame the election. And it gives something to throw at the politicians. Why have you done so badly? You know, et cetera, et cetera. To which the politicians are inclined to say, well, you know, we don't always believe the exit poll, et cetera, et cetera. But the other crucial reason is this, is that, of course, British elections are just a bunch of 632 individual results. Now, how do we make sense of this? How do we possibly make sense of what's going on? What's the story of the night? Particularly when you've only got 10 or 12 seats. Is this typical? What, where is this taking us? What does the fact that there's a 2% swing in Sunderland South mean? And what the exit poll does, it gives you a benchmark because we're able to say, this is our expectation. Oh, and by the way, that expectation is based on the, uh, 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 on the belief that in Sunderland South there will be a 2% swing or whatever the swing is. So if the early results tell you, begin to be in line with the results of the exit poll, you can go, look, it looks as though this is what it means. So it helps you to tell the story to the country of the early results of where we go. And last time particularly, because or, uh, above all, the exit poll was saying leave areas are going to vote, going to swing to the Tories. In comes Blythe Valley. That's what happens. So rather than going, oh, well, I wonder if that's exceptional or not, you go, look, this really is the writing on the wall. Very broad question on this. As polling becomes more successful... Really? And we're not waiting. Well, <laughs> judging by what you've said on exit polls. And that's polls. the exit poll. I mean, uh, I would, would that the record of the polling industry was polling going more successful, but it has to be said 2019 uh, was, by uh, the, the recent standards, a success. And the polling industry is not being, it's not being praised because it never gets praised for getting it roughly right. And it did get it roughly right this time. Uh, but it's not getting criticised in the way that it was in 2015 and 2017. But the question is, taken to the nth degree, if it's becoming better at making predictions... Are we, and when then not waiting for the actual result before decisions have been made, is that taking us off down a different path other than the one that we perhaps should go based on the actual well, truth? I, I, 
I mean, the one, the, the, the one thing, I mean, there, there are various arguments here. I mean, I mean, the one thing you can say about the exit poll, like, it doesn't do any harm, right? Well, what about polling in general, though? What about predictions in general? Well, I mean, there is, a, there is obviously always a debate about whether or not opinion polls affect the way in which people vote and whether or not there's a good or a bad thing. And certainly opinion polls are sometimes there are attempts to use opinion polls or opinion polls are used by political parties to try to say, particularly when it comes to trying to encourage tactical voting, to say, look, you know, we're second here or whatever and all sorts of arguments about dodgy bar charts and all the rest of it. Um, at the end of the... Well, I mean, I make two points about, uh, about this. One is that you know, insofar as one can discern what is the impact of these things. Um, the last time somebody did a substantial piece of academic research on this, on polls in the UK and their influence, and it, is, it has to be said quite a while ago, basically their conclusion was that for every uh, occasion when you could argue that there was a bandwagon effect in favour of the party that was ahead, there's another election in which there was an underdog effect in which people were... You know, so it's not obvious, right? Um, but the only thing I would say, would, would, would say is this, is that... Um, if, as some people sometimes suggest, that you should ban the publication of opinion polls for some period or other up to an election, um, is that, well, one is why should you deny the public access to this information? Maybe voters think that it is useful information. And certainly given that what, all that you can do is to ban the publication... You cannot ban the taking of polls. You create an inside market in information. I mean, it's already in it, we, we, as we've seen with some of the arguments about exit polling in the 2016 EU, you know, people go, well, hang on, you know, because you're not allowed to publish any exit poll information until after the uh, polls have closed. That's the one ban we do have. Well, that does therefore mean that if you are think that the outcome of an election or a referendum is going to have uh, implications on the financial markets, it creates an insider market in that information. You go out and do your own exit poll, and if you can make a few million quid as a result, you know, that the money on the exit poll is money well spent. So, the, the, so therefore, you create an inside market, and is that healthy? Um, and of course, the third thing these days, you can't ban the publication of opinion polls anyway. All you can do is to ban it within your jurisdiction. But given the internet, all you have to do is to publish it on a website that's, that is registered outside the UK and all the rest of us can see it. In talking to us now, obviously, you believe in transparency and explaining the methodology and yep. sticking up for it. Yep. Do you worry, are you concerned about the influence on opinion by the likes of uh, social media, for example, I'm thinking about the Cambridge Analytica scandal in particular. Um, I mean, I, I, first thing I'll say straight away, I'm not an expert in social media. Have I bothered to follow the, the, the intricacies of ca the Cambridge Analytica story? No, I have not. Um, I would make, I suppose, um, I make, well, a couple of observations. I mean, one is that, sure, what appears to be true about social media is that sheep follow sheep and dogs follow dogs. And to that extent, at least, clearly it enables people to collect to create their own bubbles, which in many cases will have nothing to do with politics because most people have far more sensible things to do than to use social media. You know, that's not uh, they're central to their lives. But those of us who are those interested do. And to that extent, at least, therefore, yes, you are creating partisan bubbles. And insofar as perhaps social media might be displacing 
what historically have been the neutral source of information, i.e. broadcasting, you can kind of say this is a problem. But it's not entirely a new problem because we do have to remember that in this country we've long had a partisan press and you could always decide whether you're going to read the Daily Mail or the Daily Mirror. And to that extent, at least... Uh, people immersing themselves in partisan information is not a wholly new phenomenon. So that's point one. But then point two that I think flows from this is that insofar as social media does appear to be about sheep following sheep and dogs following dogs, you can certainly therefore see how it's a way of mobilising people. But insofar as most people are not going to pick up the messages coming from the other side, I'm not sure how effective it is as a method of persuasion, okay? In other words, you've really got to be getting at people who are already at least halfway with you. What I think obviously is true is that one of the things that hitherto we had avoided in the UK because of the way in which we decided to regulate um, uh, the political parties on television, i.e. we banned television advertising, we we insisted that party election broadcasts have to be of a certain age. We have basically outlawed attack advertising. But because we've not regulated the internet fast enough, and of course there are question marks about whether you can do it anyway, it does raise questions about the fact that we do now have the attack ad in our politics via social media. And of course what's also true, though, I mean, obviously efforts are being made to try to counteract this, also perhaps the risk that messages get sent out to people that other people don't see, including your opponents don't see, and therefore uh, are they accountable for them. Though again, you know, there's nothing new about a political party putting out one message in a housing estate with lots of young people and another message in a housing estate with lots of old people. You could, you could do that with leaflets too, but obviously social media perhaps gives you an attempt to do even more of that. So I think, you know, that's a long-winded way of saying that perhaps this is not necessarily quite as new, some of the phenomena, as people say, but sure, they may exaggerate potential problem or increase the propensity to potential things that we might regard as potential problems uh, to a great to extent. And is there, a, is there an argument for at least some, some regulation of um, advertising on the internet? Yeah, absolutely. John, I just want one more question on where we are at the moment in terms of voting, in terms of political landscape, because it seems like the old left and right has gone. We've gone through Brexit and remain. What are the divisions now? Well, Brexit has been deeply disruptive to our electoral politics because you know, in the UK, we typically think of particularly the argument between Conservative and Labour as an argument between those on the left, i.e. Labour, and those on the right, i.e. the Conservatives. And it's essentially an argument about what role should the government play vis-a-vis -vis the economy and vis-a-vis -vis inequality in our society. So on one side of the argument, you say the role of the government should be to intervene in the economy with a view to try to reduce the level of inequality in our society. The argument on the other side now is the role of government should be to create an environment in which entrepreneurs are willing to take risks and therefore are rewarded adequately for taking those risks as a result of which the economy will grow more rapidly and we will all benefit, right? That's, that's the essential argument. Brexit was not about that. We were not arguing the EU referendum about the role of government. We were arguing about essentially our sense of identity, particularly as, as occasioned by immigration, 
and it was very much a debate between people who we might want to call social liberals, who are people who would say, look, in the end, what moral code you follow is up to you, whether you have an abortion or not, look, this is your decision. Um, if, you, uh, if you find yourself in those circumstances, you know, what social mores you adhere to, it's up to you. Your sense of identity is up to you. Whether you adhere to religion or not, it's up to you. Whether you acknowledge the queen or not, it's up to you, etc., uh, etc. Et right? And also, look, you know, I love living in a diverse environment like London. But there are those on the other side who will say, well, that's all fine, but actually if a society is going to cohere um, and social cohesion matters, actually it matters what language people speak. A, a society to some degree does have to impose its mo own moral code. Um, people um, um, you know, should be feeling British and acknowledging the Union flag. And they're much more, we might want to label social conservative, and they're kind of, you know, a bit more concerned about how um, immigration and people with different backgrounds coming into a country might indeed change the character of a society. Um, so Brexit, left-wingers and right-wingers just as likely to vote remain or leave. Social liberals voted remain, social conservatives voted to leave. And thereafter, now there's there's always been a bit of that divide in the party. You know, the Conservative Party, the secrets in the name was always a bit more likely to pick up social liberal, social conservatives than social liberals. Labour somewhat more likely to pick up social, but nothing like as in biggest difference as the left-right divide. But Brexit's about that other divide, and voters in the 2017 and the 2019 election increasingly align them their, their, which party they're going to vote for with their view about Brexit. So to just quote the party for whose votes most been most obviously changed. The Conservative Party back in 2015 got the vote of 45% of those who a year later went on to vote leave. In the 20 19 election, according to the estimates we've got so far, they got nearly three quarters of that vote. So it's up 30%. Conversely, the Conservative Party had about 30% of the vote of those who went on to vote remain back in 2015. 2019, the figure's down to 20%. So the Conservative votes become so much more of a leave vote. And because the leave vote is of people who are older, people with less than their educational qualifications, this has also helped to change the character support. Age is now the biggest division in, in, in our electoral politics. Um, education's important division. At the simple level, at least, social class isn't. It's only when you've controlled for a few things. So, you know, class is no longer simply the basis of British politics. Age and education matter. Um, but this does therefore mean that we've now got, for both our political parties, they're having both... The Conservative Party's task is to try to maintain a coalition of people on the centre-right and people who are social conservatives. Labour's task is to try to keep a coalition of people who are social liberals and people who are on the left. And these two things do not necessarily go together. That's why both parties had an enormous amount of trouble in the last parliament cohering and why the Labour Party at the moment is still working out how the devil to keep its coalition together. But equally, there are challenges potentially ahead for the Conservative Party in the same area. Um, so that's Brexit. Therefore, it has, you know, it was dramatised by the so-called collapse of the Labour Red War. But it's Brexit has changed the ideological character of support for political parties. 
And that does mean that, you know, party competition now is different from what it was just four years ago. John, let's finish off by talking about you personally. I know this has been something that has been an almost lifelong interest. You got in, interested in elections when you were nine or ten years old and yeah. went through university and got into polling and did statistics as well on the side because yeah. you saw, you saw uh, the value in that. I know you're not going to tell me how you vote or indeed if, even if you do vote. No, you're not. No. Uh, at all. No. But what do you make of becoming, by virtue of being the puppet master shown on screen, as you've said, yeah. as you described it, a, a bit of a celebrity? There's a Twitter feed saying John Curtis on know, TV, which follows your every move. I mean, I mean, it, it, it's happened. <laughs> it is not sought. I guess I've learned to live with it. It occasionally has the odd advantage. Um, but um, uh, hopefully... Um, well, my wife keeps me grounded, uh, and 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 hopefully I'm just the same person that that, that I. Well, I mean, I, at the end of the day, I I mean, I mean, you know, I mean, you know, I, I acknowledge that. And at the end of the day, I mean, you know, getting on the television is not really a great deal to do with any great intellectual ability or whatever. What at the end of the day producers want is if I stick this person in front of camera. Will they be reasonably coherent and articulate for two minutes? And you know, I am lucky that one of the skills I do seem to have is to be able to frame arguments and answers on the fly in response to questions. Um, and occasionally it's inarticulate, but hopefully most of the time. Pe- people do say, you know, you help me to understand what's going on. Well, okay, that's fine. I mean, I, I'm delighted that that's true. Um, but at the end of the day, I mean, all I really feel I am doing is, and I'm without trying to feel too grand or pompous about it, you know, I'm an academic funded by the, the taxpayer who has you know, a certain amount of knowledge and expertise in a certain area. And I think all academics have a obligation wherever possible to help to inform the society that funds them and that's you know why I do it and because you know from the very beginning I was working with somebody like David Butler who did a lot of media work the person I first worked with academically was a guy called Michael Steed who also used to do a lot of media work as well as being something of an active politician for me from the beginning this was just part of what you did all right nothing special nothing unusual nothing exceptional uh, this is part of your role and job as an academic who happens to study a subject which at least once every four or five years lots of people are rather interested in and that's all it is and I'm quite happy to do it but you know equally if you want to ask me you know what is my happiest day it is sitting at home with the word processor writing and the phone doesn't ring and I'm not doing the radio, and I'm not doing the telly. So at the end of the day, I can leave it all behind. I do it because people want me to do it, but I'm not desperate to do it. Very glad you're not at home now. You're here with us in Freud's, talking to us on the Freudcast. Professor Sir John Curtis, many thanks indeed. You're welcome. You can hear more episodes and indeed subscribe to the Freudcast on Apple Podcasts, on SoundCloud and on Spotify. And you can find out about more uh, episodes and also what else is going on at Freud's on our LinkedIn page as well. For now, thanks to you for listening. Bye-bye. 